Adventure Podcast. This podcast is about helping listeners learn from and meditate on our sermons from anywhere at any time. Thanks for joining us, and let's get started. This episode is from the Rethinking My Life series, and it is called Rethinking How I Think About God. All right, we're in installment number four of our series, Rethinking My Life. And we're learning that to rethink our life, we actually have to rethink how we think and what we think about. And I appreciate uh, Jason filling in for the last couple weeks and teaching us about how to think like Jesus, and then how to have a better view of myself and how I think about myself. And today we're going to talk about rethinking how I think about God, because the reality is... A lot of people believe a lot of crazy stuff about God, and they read it on that great theological institution, the interweb, right? And they attend important classes that are highly accredited on YouTube, and they come up with some complete nonsense. And it's important you understand, how I choose to think about God affects how I think about everything, and it directly affects how I, well, the life choices that I make. So am I thinking about a God that I have created in my own image? I love it when I hear people say, well, I just think God, all right, bad answer already. Or am I thinking about the actual true God who's revealed himself in scripture? The great American historian A.W. Tozer wrote this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And a man's spiritual spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than his idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his heart conceives God to be like. We tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. So how we think about God determines so much about our life. It determines how we look at our problems. It determines how we look at our relationships. It determines whether or not we feel a hope for the future. And whether you think about who God is or whether you maybe never think about who God is, it determines so much about your life. One of the things we all have to come to grips with in our lives is how have I arrived at what I believe about God? How have I gotten there? I mean, where does my view of God come from? Most people, and by most people, I mean nearly everyone, is tempted 
to allow our circumstances, what's happening around us, to determine what we believe about God. So it goes like this. If my circumstances around me are good, then God must be good. If my circumstances around me are bad, then God must be if I keep asking God for something and he doesn't give it to me, then he must not exist. But that limits my view of God to my circumstances. Circumstances that may change frequently. Has anybody's circumstances here changed at least once in the last 12 months? Yeah, right? And see, if I base my view of God on my circumstances, then that actually makes me greater than God and puts me in control of God. And can I just tell you something? If I can control God, he can't be counted on. <laughs> right? Because he's going to have all my flaws. So what I want to I do today, I want to show you six areas where changing your thinking about God can change your life. All right, here we go. Number one. First thing straight up. I can choose to accept his grace. You say, wait, I don't, I don't deserve God's grace. All right, you're headed the right direction already. Good job. None of us deserve it. None of us deserve God's grace. Listen, this is fundamental. Something you've got to understand about God. John chapter 3. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who, what? Circle the word believes, believes in him, will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to what? Save the world through him. So in that verse, I have a lot of very theologically liberal friends with whom I have some big disagreements, but they're still my friends. I still love them. And at some point, I'm going to get these pastors saved. Um, <laughs> When they read that verse, the, what they want to focus on, they want to focus on the word love. They want to focus on the word world. They want to focus on the word everyone. They want to focus on eternal life. They want to focus on save the world. And what they want to do is they want to stop right there and say, see, God is going to save everyone no matter what they believe or do. That's called universal salvation. And by the way, it's exactly the opposite of the gospel. It is exactly the opposite of what scripture teaches. Yes, God's love is unconditional. God loves unsaved people just as much as he loves you. God's love is unconditional. He'll never love you more than he loves you right now. He'll never love you less than he loves you right now. So God's grace or God's love is unconditional. God's grace, on the other hand, is not unconditional. It is not unconditional. There's a way that you accept God's unconditional love and his grace and it allows you to spend eternity with him. Now watch this. Here we go. Next verse, verse 18. There is no judgment against anyone, underline the next four words, who believes in him. See, when I believe something, I adjust myself accordingly to what I believe. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. What does that mean? Again, it means it's true that God absolutely loves you, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you. But we show our willingness to receive his grace 
when we accept his son and we bring our lives into alignment with him. So we accept him. He helps us make the choices then that bring our lives into alignment. If I'm not willing to do what God says, I've not accepted God's grace. All right, number two. I can choose to appreciate his holiness. Now, for, the next, for this section, every time you see the word holy or a variation of a holiness, circle it. All right, watch, watch all this. Psalm 33, we put our hope in the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his, what? Holy name. Let your unfailing love surround us, Lord, for our hope is in you and other things. No, it's in you alone. There's a problem some of you may already have. When you hear the word holy or you, you hear the word holiness, you think, I'm, that's not me, I can't ever do that. That's never going to happen for me. I'm, I'm messed up already. Listen, let me give you a really simple de definition of the word holy. You just have to scratch this in at the side somewhere because I forgot to put it in the notes. A little bit aggressive deleting. Um, holy simply means fully devoted to righteousness. That's all it means to be holy. I'm fully devoted to righteousness doesn't mean I'm perfect. It just means I want to do everything I can. I want to, I want to be fully devoted to God's righteousness. Leviticus 11.44, For I am the Lord your God. You must consecrate yourselves to be fully devoted to righteousness, right? Because I am fully devoted to righteousness. Leviticus 19, Give the following instructions to the entire community of Israel. You must be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. So God's holiness is unlike anything else out there. And what happens is my sin, my lack of devotion to holiness in the past, to righteousness, has separated me from God. So it's my own unholiness of the past that keeps me separated. But God's always had a plan to close that gap to bring us together. Leviticus 20. So set yourselves apart to be holy, for I am the Lord your God. So how do you set yourself apart to be holy? Keep all my decrees by putting them into practice. By the way, you're not saved by those decrees. Those decrees show your willingness to be saved. For I am the Lord who does what? Who makes you holy? You're not going to be holy in and of yourself. I'm going to cover that for you. Isaiah 57. The high and lofty one who lives in eternity, the holy one, says this. I live in the high and holy place with those spirits who are what? Contrite. What's contrite mean? So contriteness is a brokenness that comes from a sincere... Um, a sincere remorse that results in a willingness to change, to do whatever is necessary. When I am contrite, I'm willing to do whatever is necessary, whatever's required of me to deal with this, right? He says, so I live in a holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and revive. So you come to Jesus broken and Jesus then unbreaks you. Isn't that cool? He fixes it and revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. So repentance is my choice.
to do things differently to bring myself into alignment with what God has said. So I had a severe moment of repentance earlier this year. I am a coffee snob. Hi, my name's Tony. I'm a coffee snob. Right. Um, I uh, make all my coffee out of a French press. I don't drink coffee that doesn't come out of a French press at home. I think my coffee rivals any coffee out there, with the possible exception of Milltown. Um, but uh, with a French press, it's a cylinder, got a, got a screen on it. You heat your water up somewhere between, just under 212 degrees. Look could even get like 200, maybe to 205. Don't boil your water. If your water boils, you're messing with the actual taste of your water. Snob. Okay, so <laughs> I put my grounds in my, in my French press, and then I pour that water in, and I let it sit for four minutes. Now, I have... My, I have a favorite, well, I had a favorite French press. It's stainless steel, big rubber handle. I've burned it many times in campfires and stuff like that. I love that thing, man. That's, we got a history. We've been places. I literally take that thing when I travel. Um, it's too big, but I take it anyhow. And every once in a while, TSA goes, what is that in your, it's a French press. You know, and they're looking at me like, snob. Um, <laughs> so, anyhow, I needed to replace the screen filter on it, and I'm too cheap sometimes, so I cleaned it and cleaned it and cleaned it. So I've got my coffee in there. It's time. I go to press it. let it sit for four minutes, five minutes. If you want really strong coffee. French press coffee is strong, by the way. Okay, so I go over it, and I go to press it. Well, it goes down about like this far, and it stops because the, the, the screen is full. It won't let anything through. I need to replace the screen. And so I thought, well, I'll take a sucker over into the sink. So if I squirt any out, I'll be fine. So I get on it, and I just start putting my weight on it. Well, eventually, I'm on it, and I'm picking my feet up off the air, or off the floor. And I'm hanging over the sink, and I'm pressing this thing down. Well, it does this thing that the stuff under pressure likes to do. It exploded with 210-degree water. It exploded big time. I had coffee grounds on the ceiling. I had coffee grounds in the cabinets, all over the counter, all over me, and I scalded myself. I was, if you go back, you see the videos, you'll see there was a period where I wore nothing but long sleeve shirts because I burned myself from here to here. I had big blisters, changed colors and everything. My stomach, I still have a big dark spot on my stomach. It just looks terrible. But I burned myself blisters all long hair, all bloody. It was a mess. In the moment... When I felt myself being scalded, I repented. <laughs> I will never do that again. I will replace the screen or I will get a new French press. I got a new French press. I threw the old one away and I bought about a dozen screens <laughs> at the same time. And they're just right there on the shelf with it. So I, I will... That's what repentance is. Repentance says, I'm willing to do anything to avoid that again. <laughs> I will not do that again. That's repentance. So he says, so I will restore the spirit of the humble. I will revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. Those who are willing to take their life in a new trajectory to look at their old life and go, mm, not doing that again. That's repentance. All right, number three. I can choose to trust his judgment. Now, a lot of people get this backwards because we think, man, I'm going to accept Christ because I am not going to hell. I do not want that. Listen, that's the reverse thing. What we want you to do is understand 
we don't focus on the judgment of God. We focus on the wisdom of God. God is the pinnacle of wisdom. God is the one who created everything. He understands everything. He knows how it all works. He knows what it was made to work for. God knows the best for every single situation, even the ones you got yourself into. And God knows what's best for me all the time. See, to trust God's judgment means to realize that God is the one who ultimately determines right from wrong. He's the one who does that. It's not the culture. It's not the media, especially social media. It's not, it's not the government. It's not the U.S. Supreme Court. He is the one who understands what's helpful, what's healthy, what's unsafe. He's the one who determines right from wrong, holiness from unholiness. To put it simply, God's judgment is always, always, always right. So listen, whatever situation you're going through, God understands it already. And he already understands the best solution for you. He wants you to come to him for wisdom and accept the wisdom and repent of what got you into it and take on his holiness and live differently. Proverbs 14, 12. There's a path before each person that seems right. But it ends in what? Death. Can I just tell you, if you've already decided at your funeral, you want to have them play Frank Sinatra singing My Way. <laughs> I've already got an idea about your eternity, and believe me, you're not going to like it when you figure out what it, what it is. Following our own way always ends up in trouble. Always ends up in trouble. And by the way, it ends up in trouble unnecessarily. Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with how much of your heart? All your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding, brainiac. <laughs> Seek his will in all you do and he will show you which path to take. Don't be impressed with your own wisdom. You're not that bright. Instead, fear the Lord, turn away from evil, that's repentance. Then you will have healing for your body and strength for your bones. Those are the byproduct of holiness. See, I know that I want to live with healing and I want to live with strength. I got to live differently to do that. I got to trust God's judgment even when it may not make sense to me. All right, number four. I can choose to understand his timing. So I'm not just a coffee snob. I'm also a Tolkien nerd um, and a Lewis nerd. I love those guys. It dawned on me this week. Both those guys were part of the English faculty at Oxford University. And <laughs> Lewis named his first book, The Lion, Comma, The Witch, and the Wardrobe. He didn't use an Oxford comma, and he's from Oxford. He helped write the book that made that the rule. That just strikes, I'm a nerd. That just strikes me as funny. Okay, the rest of you will get that, I don't know. Whenever you get your GED, you'll appreciate that, I'm sure. All right. So there is a scene in The Lord of the Rings where Bilbo Baggins, 
It's in the Fellowship of the Ring where Bilbo Baggins is having his, what is it, 111th birthday or something like that. He's having his birthday. And uh, Gandalf, the wizard, is riding into town. He's going to provide the fireworks. And Frodo, the hobbit, is up on a hillside waiting on Gandalf to come in. And finally, he passes by. Gandalf passes by Frodo. And just Frodo just looks at him and says, you're late. And Gandalf makes a great statement. He says, a wizard is never late, Frodo Baggins, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. That's also true of God. God is never late, and much to my chagrin, he's also never early. <laughs> Not even one second. But see, I've got to stop telling God what to do, and especially when to do it. I always joke, I tell God all the time, God, the world would be such a better place if you just do what I tell you. Right? You know what I'm saying? If God just did what I said, the world would be little piles of ash everywhere. <laughs> so it's a good thing he doesn't do what I say. But the reality is, listen, there's a lot of horrible things that happen to people, and we wonder, where was God? Where was God when this happened? Why wasn't God there when it happened? I know there's some of you today, you barely made it here today. You are really struggling to even be here today. You're struggling in your health. You're struggling in your relationships. You're struggling financially. You have concerns about the future. And you're wondering, why does God let this keep going on? Why does, why does it God fix this? Why does it God put a stop to this? Why is this taking so long? Listen, it's in those moments, it's in those most difficult times when it's hard to understand God's timing, when nothing seems right, when it seems clear to us what the answer is, that we need to trust. Psalm 27, 14. Wait, how? Patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous, yet wait again, how? Patiently for the Lord. Second Peter. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promises. Some people think, no, he's being patient for your sake. Listen, don't give up because God's timing ultimately is perfect. It doesn't always feel that way because we don't trust him. We don't have what we call the God's eye view. You know, when uh, we were, for some reason, we watched the Macy's Day Parade every Thanksgiving. I'll be real honest. I've never understood parades. <laughs> Great. Bunch of adults dress up and parade in front of each other. Um, how fun. <laughs> yeah, you, 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 you feeling it? Yeah, me too. All right. So anyhow. Um, Okay, I get the candy part. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to have a parade, just tell me where you're throwing chocolate. And I'll shop until that part gets there. Um, Macy's, Macy's Parade this year, they did an interesting thing. They took a drone shot of the parade. And you could see the parade almost from the beginning to almost the end. You couldn't quite make out the beginning of the end of it and the end of it. But you could see a long ways on it. Listen, the problem for you and me is we see our life kind of like a parade. All we can see is the float right in front of us at ground level. God has what we call the God's eye view. God sees the whole parade all at once. He knows what's gone by in your life. He knows what's still coming in your life. And we need to trust him. 
He's in control. Watch this from Isaiah 55. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you can imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts, and my view of your circumstances are drone level, not ground level. All right, number five. I can choose to respect his strength. See, we respect God's strength not just because he's powerful, but because he's all-powerful. There's nothing else like him. And respecting his strength means I ask for help and then I lean on his help when I'm in trouble. Psalm 18. Here's what David says. Believe me, David was in trouble all the time. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my savior. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my shield, the power that saves me and my place of safety. He's a place of security. He's a place of safety. He's a place of refuge. And when you see him as a place of refuge where you can run, then you know that you've come to respect his strength. Unfortunately, part of my role in the community is I end up in the emergency room with people a lot. Not so much in the last year, because that's kind of been a no-no. But I end up with people, it seems, and I end up delivering unfortunate news to people. Um, I remember at one point, uh, we went into an emergency room situation and been a car accident. And uh, someone said, what can we do? And I said to the person, why don't we just pray right now? Let's just, because it, usually it calms people down. You know, and I said, okay, why don't we just pray? And this guy looks at me, and I'm not making light of his situation. Everybody lived, by the way, in that situation, but it was, a, it was, it was stressful for him. But I said, why don't we pray first? And he looked at me and he said, has it already come to that? <laughs> God ought to be the first option, not the last option, Right? He ought to be your constant place you run, not the place you run when you have nowhere else to run. See, it also means one other thing that's a little less obvious to trust in his strength. Respecting God's strength means I quit pretending like he's weak or unwilling to help me. I got to give that up. I quit pretending that God is so naive that he doesn't notice what's happening with me and he doesn't notice when I'm taking him for granted. It means I quit pretending that I can live my life any way I darn well choose to live my life and still claim that I love him. Because if I don't live his way, I don't love him. Jesus said that. If my goal is to live his way, I can't say that I love God because it's clear that I don't. See, when you say I can love God and still continue down this path that I want to play on here, God doesn't let that go unchallenged. Watch this from Romans 2. Did you think that because he's such a nice God, by the way, this is sarcasm, right? Everybody likes to read the Bible like it's Charlton Heston or James Earl Jones, you know, citing it. The Bible's got a ton of sarcasm in it. Did you think that because he's such a nice God, he'd let you off the hook? Better think this one through from the beginning. God is kind, but he's not soft. In kindness, he takes us firmly by the hand, and here, just an underline to the end, leads us into a what? Radical life change. Struggle the words radical life change. A radical life change. You know, we're, 
we get that word or those words radical life change they come from the word repentance our life changes radically we turn we go the other way again to repent means i choose a completely different trajectory for my life a trajectory away from what the world says a trajectory away from what i think to what god says and what god wants and if i cannot adjust my trajectory in my thinking, I can't adjust my trajectory in my life. And I will never have a strong relationship with the Lord. All right, number six, last thing. I can choose to enjoy his presence. I can choose to enjoy God's presence. Now, let me, let me just say, you're not always going to feel God's presence in your life. I, I know people say, yeah, I got saved. Everything's going to be great from here on out. <laughs> Okay. No, it's not. In fact, once you find Christ, Satan works real hard to disavow you of that. Your life actually gets a little bit worse right after you accept Christ, and then it's a constant battle from then on out. You're not always going to feel God's presence. There's a gal by the name of Corey Tenboom. Her family survived, a con well, she survived a concentration camp. Everyone else in her family died in a concentration camp. And as her sister Betsy was dying, Corey was asking, she was stressing, and she was just simply saying, as she's holding her dying sister in one of the barracks, she says, where is God in this pit that we're in? And she, she's having a really hard time believing all the things her family had always believed about God because of her circumstances at that moment. And her dying sister said to her, there is no pit so deep that he is not deeper still. I don't know what you're going through, but God is deeper still. His presence is there, even when you can't feel it. Psalm 1611, you will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you when? forever. See, that's the kind of joy that God wants us to know is available to us in most of those situations. But sometimes the decision to understand his presence isn't emotional. It's intellectual. You don't feel it here. You just have to know from what you have here that he's there. Even when that pit in your stomach says you are all alone. Psalm 16, I know the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken. It's an intellectual choice, not an emotional choice. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. I know some of you are saying, well, I want to feel like God is surrounding me, but I know I just don't feel that way. I don't know if I can ever feel that way. So David described the problem like this, Psalm 42. As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for the living God. So let's ask the basic question. What is it your soul thirsts for? What is it in your heart of hearts that you really thirst for, that you want to have? I think some of us will say, well, my soul thirsts for rest. My soul thirsts for joy. My soul thirsts for peace. My soul thirsts for significance is a big one. Those are all things. If you're thirsting for those things and you're pursuing those things, you're never going to find them. Those are the byproduct of pursuing God. When you pursue God, all of those other things come along. We're searching for the byproduct, but not the source. 
You know, a lot of us, even those who've known the Lord and served the Lord for a long time, often find ourselves drifting a little bit. And sometimes we'll lean into trying to quench that thirst somewhere other than the boss. <laughs> I think sometimes we're even a little bit nervous to get close to God. You know, kind of like a little kid, you tell him all year long, Santa Claus is awesome, he's going to bring you some stuff. And then you take him to the mall and throw him on this bearded stranger, which you've told him for years, stay away from strangers. Right? But suddenly it's okay for them to sit on the lap of a total stranger and they scream and cry and we're like, oh, that's so funny. Your kid thinks they're dying. Um, you just broke everything you've been teaching them. Some of us are like little kids with Santa Claus. We really like the idea, but we're really afraid to get close. We don't want to get close. And so what happens is we try finding those hits in other places. We try to find security in something else. You know, I think sometimes we're a little bit doubtful, so we look elsewhere, and we find other things to invest ourselves in. Maybe they're good things. They might actually be good things. They're just not the best things. Maybe they're neutral things. Maybe they're actually sinful things. But in the end, our lives end up looking exactly like our neighbors who don't know the Lord. Listen, when you're one of God's people, your life must look different than the lives of the people who don't know the Lord. Otherwise, there is no difference. See, when you follow Christ, you're not going to become a perfect follower of Christ. But you should be different. You should be growing. Your life should be changing. People should be able to sense that you are becoming more like Christ. One of the keys to feeling comfortable in the presence of God is to understand that his love is, again, unconditional, and he accepts unworthy me through his grace so that I can feel comfortable with his presence, knowing that he's going to fill the gap and help me become more righteous. He's going to love me and take care of me. Yeah, he may discipline me, but he still loves me. That's why we call him Father God. That's why Jesus called him Father God. When I begin to understand what it means to call the creator of the universe my Father that's a big deal. I mean, this is just an amazing thing to me. Look at Romans 8, 15. For the spirit that God has given you does not make you slaves and cause you to be afraid. Instead, the spirit makes you God's children, and by the spirit's power, we cry out to God, Father, my Father. So there's some spots in the New Testament, which was written in Greek, where the writers don't use Greek. They use the original language. This one isn't Greek. This one, for that word father, father, they go back to the Aramaic and the Hebrew. It actually says, and we cry out, Abba, Abba, not the band, Abba. Abba, that's the old word for father. I love it because the word for father sounds the same in almost every language. Um, Baba, probably the most common one. But it's a play on the same thing. In fact, Baba is father in Arabic, Indonesian, Mandarin, Norwegian, Swahili, and Turkish. Figure out the connection between those, right? But it's the first sound that a child can make. We go with those easy sounds. Listen, if you've been through something bad with your earthly father, it's really tempted to see your heavenly father through that same filter. But I want to encourage you to be careful about that. For some people, Abba, father, dad, is someone who was never around. It was maybe someone who could never be counted on, somebody who knocked up mom and bailed on her, left us all alone. And that's how we see him. Maybe you're somebody who's cruel 
and merciless. Somebody who never showed you any grace. Someone who may have been the source of your pain, but I want you to understand, that's not Abba. That's not God your Father. He's not the source of your pain. He's the source of the healing for your pain. I know I've had people tell me, you know, I want to get close to God, but I just got to tell you, I'm a little bit scared about that. I'm a little bit scared to get close to God. So in Lewis's book, The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe, there's a child character named Susan who's gone through the wardrobe and is now in the land of Narnia, and she's talking to Mr. Beaver. All the animals there can talk. She's talking to Mr. Beaver, and she realizes she's going to get to meet the king. His name is Aslan. And so she's excited about meeting the king, but as she's listening to people talk about the king, she starts realizing he's not a human being. He's not a human being. He's, it sounds like he might be a, a, a very large lion. And so now she's afraid of him. And here's how the story goes, because she asked about it. So Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, Susan said, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's a lion. <laughs> but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Listen, this is so important. Would you bow your heads with me? The Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, the supreme and omnipotent judge of all that was, all that is, and all that will be, has chosen you and me, that when we receive what Jesus Christ has done through us, done for us through his suffering, through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection, that we shall be called the children of the Most High God. And in his perfect love, we have no fear because our fear of God is based on our insecurities, not on the security of his character that never changes. Father, today we come and we realize we have screwed up so much stuff about you. Whole denominations have, whole groups of people have. And Father, today we just ask that you guide us in learning and appreciate you for who you are and understanding you as you are revealed in Scripture. Father, help us to adjust our thinking that your love for us is unconditional. That all we need to do is turn toward you and we can receive your grace. We just simply choose to believe what you've said. That we repent by saying, from this moment on, my life goes a different direction. Because I want to receive what Jesus has done. Not that we're saved by that decision, but that, that decision shows that we've chosen to be saved. Father, we thank you for your gift of eternal life. Now, Father, help us as we work out that life now, as we live that eternal life today, as we continue to go in a new trajectory toward you and toward your holiness. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.